when he snuck into Auschwitz. That's right, into Auschwitz. Halicki knew that something was terribly wrong with the concentration camp, and he just couldn't sit by and watch. He wanted to get information about the horrors of Auschwitz, but he knew that he could only do that from the inside. So his superiors approved a daring plan. They provided a false identity card with a Jewish name upon it, and then Pilecki allowed the Germans to arrest him during a routine Warsaw street roundup. Pilecki was assigned to Auschwitz and given the number 4859. Pilecki later said, I bade farewell to everything I had known on this earth. He became just like any other prisoner there, despised, beaten, and often threatened with death. From inside the camp, he wrote, the game I was now playing at Auschwitz was dangerous. In fact, I had gone beyond what people in the real world would consider dangerous. But he organized the inmates into resistance units, boosting morale and documenting the atrocities. Pilecki also used couriers to smuggle out detailed reports about what was going on. By 1942, he'd also helped to organize a secret radio station just using scrap parts. The information that he supplied from inside the camp provided the Western allies with key information about Auschwitz. In the spring of 1943, Pilecki joined the camp bakery where he was able to overpower a guard and actually escape. Once free, he finished his report estimating that around 2 million people had been killed at Auschwitz. When the reports reached London, they thought he was just exaggerating, but of course, today we know that that's all true. Here's how a contemporary Jewish journal summarized Pilecki's life. They said, once he set his mind to the good, he never wavered, never stopped. He crossed that great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. In his report, Pilecki said, there's always a difference between saying you will do something and actually doing it. A long time before, I'd worked on myself in order to be able to fuse those two things together. The current Polish ambassador to the U.S. described Pilecki as a diamond among Poland's heroes. On an immensely far grander scale, this is what Jesus did on that first Christmas. Do you know what Christmas is telling us? Christmas is telling us that when Jesus, the Lord of heaven, heard our cries, he came down. He made himself vulnerable. But he didn't come down the way that Pilecki did at the risk of his life. He didn't come down at just the risk of his life. When the Lord of the universe came down, he came down knowing that it would cost him his life. But he came because the word became flesh. The word became vulnerable. The word even became killable. That's what Christmas means. The one who made the world entered into the world as a person. The one who created the world became a creature, a human being. God became man. That is the real story that seldom surfaces above the holiday celebration. This is the good news that is worth printing on the front page of every newspaper. This is the arresting news that ought to be sweeping the Internet this morning. Every person on this planet ought to hear this news at least once that the living God has become one of us. 
Now today, people tell preachers, people don't want to hear doctrine. Give them something that will inspire them and help them make it through the week. Who needs a dusty old doctrine, especially one with such a long name like the Incarnation? But I'm not going to insult you like that, because I want you to know that there is nothing more practical than this doctrine. Not only that, this doctrine is our only hope. Look at our verse this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I wish it were possible to approach John 1.14 as though reading it for the very first time. This verse contains something that was new and quite startling when it was first written. And yet for us who read it nearly 2,000 years later, it has become commonplace. We read, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what Christmas is really all about. But I guess we should look back for a minute as why that word had to become flesh in the first place. If we were to read the first chapter of Genesis, we would read that God saw all that he made and that it was good. That means that what God created was absolutely perfect. God's creatures made to fly in the air were perfect. The animals on the earth were good. The earth was good. The universe all around was good. His creation was perfect, and that includes our original mother and father, Adam and Eve. They were the prototype of men and women, and they stood as king and queen over all creation in health and perfect and unfallen. And along with the physical perfection, they also had social perfection. The early chapters of Genesis tells us that Eve was taken out of the Adam's side. She was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, this denotes intimacy. God took a rib from Adam and made the perfect mate. We could maybe say that that was a splitting of the first Adam for all you science nerds. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Adam and Eve had no sins to come between them, no complexes, really no social hang-ups. Their relationship as our original mother and father was only a perfect relationship. Not only that, they also, at the same time, walked with God. Their perfect relationship was paralleled by their upward spiritual relationship. Adam and Eve walked unclothed, innocent, and before God. This is an inviting and beautiful picture this morning. Why? Because all of us, whether we know it or not, long for what Adam and Eve had and represent. We long for that restoration from sin since we all know too well the effects of the fall. However, it only takes two chapters for things to fall completely apart. In chapter 3, we see them fallen, and now for the first time, they are ashamed of their nakedness. We are told that they sewed fig leaves together as a covering. And so we could say that Adam wore the plants in the family. That's the last one. That's the last one, okay? But anyway, from that moment onward, we now have someone that we need to save us. We need the Word made flesh. Now, of course, in our culture today, people always want to blame someone else, even the devil. 
There's a cute little story about a girl named Mary Ann who one day got into a fight with her brother. The mother stopped the fight by yanking Mary up sharply and sitting her down in a corner. She asked Mary Ann, why did you let the devil put into your heart to pull your brother's hair and kick his shins? Mary Ann thought for a minute and said, well, maybe the devil did put in my heart to pull my brother's hair. But kicking his shins was all my idea. <laughs> that was tremendous theology. And it shows what is wrong with this world. It is not what the devil, the environment, or our history makes us do that makes the world such a bad place. But it is what we do. The truth about the problems of man is that man himself is that problem. So really, Mary Ann had better theology than her mother did. And it's only when we begin to see things as, they, as though they, we begin, well, I'll get it right. We begin to see things as they are when we, through grace, begin to understand ourselves, life, God, and salvation. And so the overflowing fountain of grace is a marvelous gift. Or to put it another way, we all need in here to realize that we need help, but not in today's world. We are taught and told that everyone is a winner no matter what. I heard a guy talk about this week going to a, his friend's son's soccer game. So he gets there and he asks, hey, what's the score? Immediately, a woman indignantly turns around and says, we don't keep score. All the kids on this field are all winners. To which the guy replied, what about that kid over there? He has his jersey on inside out and backwards and is chasing a butterfly. I don't think he really understands the game. But this is the world that we live in. Let's not try to correct anyone. We might just hurt their feelings. But here's the thing. We are not okay. So verse 14 tells us, inexplicable as it may be, that because of that, God had to become a man. Nevertheless, because we have heard this verse from childhood, we can read it and are often strangely unmoved by it. Do you know what the Greek word is that our English word translates word? The Greek word there is logos, from where we get our English word logic. What does it mean when it says that Jesus is the logic of God? Here's what it is. God has not given us a watertight argument to prove that Christianity is true. Instead, he has given us a watertight person, not just an abstract argument. Now, a watertight person is the compelling proof that the God of the Bible and Christianity are true. To say Jesus is a watertight person and that's the compelling proof we're given rather than a watertight argument, it's to say first, to do that, you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at the accounts about his life. You have to look at his claims. You have to look at his teaching. And then you have to compare that to the way that he actually behaved. You have to look at the accounts of his resurrection. You have to use your mind to do this. You have to think. You have to say, how does this fit, and how does that fit, and how do I explain this? I will say to you that if you are willing to do that with a completely honest and open mind, you're going to find out in the end that Jesus Christ is a completely watertight and perfect person against whom in the end there really can be no type of argument because he is perfect. 
and his life towers over all the rest of mankind. The whole point of Christmas is he's the word made flesh. What does that mean? It means the, the word made soft, the word made human. More than that, the word made vulnerable. And as I said earlier, even the word made killable. When it says the word became flesh, it means to us a couple of things. One of them means that God became vulnerable. Christmas is so radical because it highlights the fact that only Christianity, of all the religions in the world, says the divine creator of the world has become human and is therefore vulnerable. He has come down among us. Now that very word flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature, but John does not say the word became a man or the word took a body. He chooses that form of expression which puts what he wants to say most bluntly. Now people now and then are ready to think of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as God sometimes, but they deny the reality of his humanity. They thought of him as only appearing to have a human life. Since God cannot, on their premises, defile himself a real contact with humankind, the whole life of Jesus then must just be in some kind of appearance only. But John's strong term right here leaves no such room for those kind of thoughts. He is clear on the deity of the word, but he is also just as clear on the validity of his humanity. In one short, shattering expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity, that the very word of God took flesh for our salvation. John begins on this mind-boggling note to make sure that we read the rest of the story correctly. He wants us to realize that Mary's child, the man from Galilee, who walks with, eats with, and plays with other people, is real flesh and blood. And he is none other than the maker of the entire universe. The man who would laugh so hard that the religious leaders would conclude that he was drunk, the man who weeps so deeply at the, at the grave of his friend Lazarus, is none other than the creator of everything. The man who gets so tired and thirsty that he has to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water is the one who in the beginning made the first hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Nothing in all human literature, nothing that we can use to make sense of our human experience can compare with the real Christmas story. How great and powerful is he, you ask? I read this week that by conservative estimates, there are 10 billion trillion stars in the known universe. That's 10 followed by 15 zeros. And the scripture tells us that by him, by his word, all things were made. Or how about this? At the center of our solar system is a star that we call the sun. Every minute, the sun pours out 6 billion quadrillion calories of heat. That's six followed by 27 zeros every minute. And yet, by him, all things were made. Still, the energy produced by our sun is nothing compared to that of a galaxy that has recently been discovered. It's 300 million light years away, and it shines with 2 trillion times greater energy than our sun. 2 trillion times greater. The numbers stagger the imagination. But even more amazing 
is when Caesar Augustus thought he ruled the world, the one who spoke all those stars and galaxies into existence lay speechless in a cattle trough. When Quirinius, the governor of Syria, the star maker himself, had entrusted himself to a teenage girl. When Herod the Great was striding his power across the scene, God the Word needed a mother to feed him and change his diapers. This is almost unbelievable. It says Jesus dwelt among us. The word used for dwell could literally be translated tabernacle. What was the tabernacle or the temple? All around the world, there have always been temples because all human beings have instinctively sensed that there, if there is a God, then there is a gap. God is great, and we are small. God is perfect, and we are flawed. And so temples were places to hopefully bridge that gap. You had offerings and sacrifices. You atoned for sin, and you sought to do everything you could to bridge that gap. You had priests even who would do that full time for you. But now we're told here that Jesus himself becomes the tabernacle. He becomes the temple. He is the ultimate priest because he laid down the ultimate sacrifice. When he went to the cross, he died for our sins, and that means he's now the temple. He can now get rid of the temples because we can now become children by grace. He uses the very word there, though, for tabernacle that was used of the tabernacle that under Moses was set up in the wilderness back in Exodus. Just to make absolutely sure what he's trying to talk about, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and now we beheld his glory. He's making us remember the fact that when Moses was on the mountain, he said, I want to know you, God. I want to know you. I want intimacy, and I want power. I want connection, so please show me your glory. Let me see your face. Do you remember what God said? I can't. It'll kill you. You will not survive it. But this is what I will do. Let's build a tabernacle, a great tent, and that will be my dwelling place. And there you'll have sacrifices in the priests, but I will dwell in the holy of the holies behind the veil because my glory must always be concealed. You can't behold it. You can't have it. You can't know it. You can't even touch it. It'll be there, but it will be concealed in the tabernacle, which is exactly the opposite of what we are told in verse 14. In the Old Testament, do you know what the glory of God is? It's smoking mountains, pillars of fire, and consuming fire. But we're told at Christmas time that the glorious majesty of God and the transcendence of God has become a baby. What does that mean? Well, a baby is accessible. A baby is safe. A baby is embraceable. What this means is because Jesus Christ has died on the cross and paid for our sins and closed that gap. Now, just as God has came into history, so now the glory of God can also come right into our lives. The life-transforming glory of God can come to you this morning. That's what Christmas means. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So we now are able to behold the glory that Moses wasn't able to see. Just like when Adam got near to God and had to run and dive into the leaves, we can also sometimes find ourselves 
running away from God too. Because we can be scared of him. We're afraid of him. Because we can be guilty. And we can become angry. Yet underneath that fear, at a deeper level than that fear, there is this desire in each of us to behold that beauty. There is this desire to be just like him. Like Moses were saying, I am afraid of you sometimes, but still please show me your glory. Hebrews 2 draws out the implications of this idea about the word becoming flesh when it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is now able to help those who are being tempted. One of the most fascinating implications is that if this is true, that the God of heaven did become flesh, then he understands you. Because he has been where you have been. He knows everything about you. As Jeannie said this morning, he is the wonderful counselor. Now, the best counselors in life are people who have been through a problem and they've come out at the other end. They're okay now, and they're able to talk to people who are going through that same kind of thing. These are counselors who can understand our problems. What does that mean? In the case of Christ, have you been betrayed? Well, so was he. Are you broke? So was he. Are you lonely? So was he. Are you even facing death? Well, so was he. You can go to him. He is the wonderful counselor. So I ask you, does Christmas have a point? Is Jesus Christ God come in the flesh? Well, his disciples certainly thought so, and they were willing to die terrible deaths as the proof of their belief. When they looked at him, what did they see? What did John see? They saw perfection. When they looked at him, they saw that he was full of grace and truth. His holiness hurt their eyes. They saw in him virtues that had never been combined in anyone else. You have tenderness without any weakness, strength without any heavy-handedness, humility without timidity, firm, unbending, unyielding convictions, and yet utter approachability. Passion without prejudice and power without insensitivity. What do you see here? You see the surprises of what perfection really is. Jesus is always better than what you could have ever expected. How do we account for that? How did they account for that? They began to scratch their heads and people started saying things like, Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Never a man spoke like this man spoke. Who is this? In the end, they had to come to the incredible conclusion. As incredible as it might seem, any other answer is even more incredible because it did not account for the facts of who he was. And so this must be God. You know, when you look at the sun without a filter, all you can see is sort of a blur. But if you look at the sun through a filter, you can see all the flames and the details of all its beauty and the power that it has. And just like that, when you look at 
when you look at Christ, you're seeing God through the filter of a human nature. And you see things you just couldn't believe. That is what the, the apostle saw. And that is what John said. He said, we beheld his glory. And it was full of grace and truth. The only way to account for this is this has to be the word. This has to be God in the flesh. John, the apostle, they come and say, listen, there is an ideal world, but at Christmas, the ideal becomes real. God punched a hole right through that wall, and the ideal became real, and that God became flesh. The word, the logos, became flesh, a person we can know and see and touch. Because of that, anyone who believes in him, the power of that ideal, the spirit of the kingdom of God comes into your life and anything can be possible. I think probably the best illustration is the illustration of a solar system. You get a bunch of planets together. The only way that they can be a system and not a junkyard that they all agree on having the same center. All their centers have to be the same. That's why you call it a system. That's why they can work together. That's why they're not colliding with each other. But if you get a bunch of planets together that have different centers for their orbits, they then will destroy each other. Now look at God for a moment. He's the center of all things. He is the source. He makes everything turn on his own glory and his own goodness. Or another way to put it is all of his actions, all of his attitudes, everything turns upon his glory and goodness. The only reason he does this is because everything he does is right. Because it's true, because it's good, because it's holy. So you see, everything turns upon his goodness and his righteousness and his truth. Now, look at us. What is our center? What do we orbit around? Or better yet, put it this way. What do all of our decisions turn upon? What do all of our actions turn upon? What really controls them? Is it truth? Is it always righteousness? If we're honest, we might say, well, I will take those things into consideration. But really, for most of us, what all of our actions and desires turn upon is our own personal happiness. That's the bottom line. That's the center. That's what everything turns upon on almost everyone's life. Does this fulfill me? Does this please me? Does this give me joy? Does this give me comfort? Let's be real honest. Is he your reason for getting up in the morning? Is he the one around whom everything in your life revolves? Are his desires and his will and his love for you the things that help you make your decisions? Does he have the highest priority in each of our lives? That is what it means to say Jesus is our logos. And that is what John says when he says he ought to be that for you because he is God. Listen, we cannot keep him on the periphery of our lives. That means if we really understand this and you put him in the center, it is then and only then that true blessings will come into your life. So the question this morning is, is he our logos? One thing we know from the nativity story is that, is that only the humble people 
got invited to his birth. The only people who got the birth announcements were people like shepherds. God held his birth in a stable, and some people just don't go to stables. But like that, my friends, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you have to be a shepherd at heart. You know what that means? It means to say, I cannot possibly make myself worthy through the law, through efforts, or through any kind of moral striving. I'll put it this way. If you believe God owes you anything, then you're not a shepherd at heart. If you believe he owes you something because of your record, because of your striving, because of your family, because you've been working so hard to be moral, then we're not a shepherd at heart. So as we finish up this morning, if the real story be told, because of Christmas we can have an unbelievable hope for the future. We have an unbelievable certainty that we shall one day be made whole. For in this stable, on Christmas Eve, God forever wedded himself to our humanity. God forever tied up God's future with our future. And so the future of Christians is, is as secure as the future of God. The incarnation of God is the guarantee that one day all of our flesh will be redeemed. Jesus would later say, because I live, you will live also. If the real story be told, the unbelievable claims of Jesus have an unbelievable, unbelievable believability. If Jesus, Mary's son, is in fact the living God of our humanity, then it is quite logical, quite rational for Jesus to say things that no one else has ever said. Of course he can say, I'm the bread of life. Of course he can say, I'm the light of the world. Of course he can say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If Mary's son is the God to whom we must one day give an account, and he says, your sins are forgiven, then they are forgiven. If Mary's son is the creator wrapped in flesh, and he cries out from the cross, it is finished, then it is finished. If the Almighty has come to earth as one of us and says, follow me, we can know that he knows where he is going. And we can know that the smartest thing we can do this morning is to follow him. And if you haven't done that, please start that journey today. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you every year as we can step back from our busy lives and really look at what's important. The only thing that is important is that you became flesh and you dwelt among us. And you have offered us a way to live with you forever and to have lives down here that matter and have purpose. You know, every heart represented here and that will hear the sermon on the Internet, I pray, God, that you would just touch their hearts and draw them into whatever relationship they need with you, whether they need to be saved, sanctified, encouraged, strengthened, or even you know, any one of those things or all of them together. I pray that you would do that. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.